this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Christy Powell, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be discussing his practice and area of specialty religious trauma syndrome, and gender and sexuality concerns. Welcome to the show, Christy. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. So uh, tell us a little bit about your credentials and experience. Sure. I am a LPC uh, operating here in Austin. Uh, Most of my background has been working in a psychiatric hospital or uh, in a crisis hotline and things are on the more acute side of psychology. But my passion has always been around relationships, uh, the different ways that people connect and uh, particularly queer, kinky and poly folks, some of the forms of relationships or connection that aren't super supported by our society. And in doing that kind of work, I was eventually approached by the atheist community of Austin because I recognized that so many of the people that I was working with were struggling with religious trauma. Uh, And so on a day to day basis, I deal with, uh, you know, suicide and sex and God and, you know, all these topics you're not really supposed to talk about. So it's pretty difficult to make me blush. And uh, I've got (laughs) experience in, in kind of all those uncomfortable spaces. Cool. Um, and my understanding is that you have a YouTube show and you serve on a board of directors of uh, a local uh, community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Secular Sexuality, Thursday nights at 7, uh, is uh, <laughs> our YouTube show where we just talk about the intersection of religion and how uh, we can experience a lot of trauma, particularly around our sexuality, as religion very often inserts itself in some sometimes very toxic ways between us and the people that we care about or want to connect with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what is the, the name of the organization that you're uh, on the board of directors for? 
Yeah, that's the atheist community of Austin. Uh, people may be familiar with the atheist experience or talk heathen. Uh, Secular Sexuality is another program that's coming out of that organization. Gotcha. Okay. So um, what is the name of your practice? Uh, Valence Counseling. Okay. And at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Uh, I don't. And uh, it's in large part at this stage because I, in some ways, haven't gotten around to it. Um, there are some really tricky pieces to that. Uh, right. The way that insurance paneling operates, the way that it pays out to therapists, and just the uh, the complications of it are, are really messy. And I I kind of hate the way that our society handles mental health and the way that our society funds mental health. And so I would like uh, just as a way of providing access to clients to, to get paneled. And that is something that I'm pursuing, but it's kind of messy. And so I, I really appreciate the opportunity that I have right now to kind of just let people pay what they can and to mm -hmm. work with anybody that's available without having to worry about, well, am I in network? Am I out of network? And, and these kinds of complications. Are my claims getting paid? Are they getting denied? Do I have to resubmit? Do I have all the necessary information to submit this claim? You know, I've got to call and get benefits and eligibility, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, is some quant sitting there with an almanac getting in the way of people receiving the help and the support that they need? That, that's just a, a messy place that I, uh, I'm hoping to navigate, but that I really don't want to become a barrier. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've accepted insurance for years. So, you know, if on the outside of this podcast, you ever want to talk about that, I'm more than willing to talk about that with you. Oh, for um, sure. No, I could definitely use the leg up. It's, uh, it's a messy <laughs> business. I also uh, used to work in utilization review at yeah. a, a psychiatric hospital for uh, outpatient PHP and IOP programs. So um, I was the person fighting the insurance to get uh, <laughs> those services covered, which was a ton of fun. Um, and then consequently, I also ended up working for a very brief period of time at uh, an insurance uh, company as well, being the person who approves or denies care. Um, but I felt a little bit like I sold my soul to the devil, so I kind of got out of there pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. No, uh, it, a partner of mine did UR utilization review or management uh, with a couple of organizations here in town. And man, it was just messy, her stories and uh, the the way we go about it as a society. I, I guess I would just say to anybody listening that uh, we need to do better collectively at taking our mental health seriously. Totally agree. Totally agree. So it sounds like you have a sliding scale. Yeah, I, uh, I don't call it a sliding scale. It's not a traditional sliding scale in the sense that I don't ask people to come in and like submit their income statements or look at their paychecks. And then we sort of like negotiate and debate about how much they can afford <laughs> or how greedy I'm feeling that particular day. I, I try to avoid all of that. And so what I have is uh, something I just call my access program. Mm -hmm. The idea is that anybody who signs up for that program just automatically gets uh, half rates, basically. They, they pay half of my normal fee. And it's just with the expectation or the hope that those clients would be people who are particularly in need. And we check up on that uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I just touch base with people every quarter. Again, there's no income verification. I'm not interested in how much money you're making or how much money you have. I'm just interested in you telling me hey, 
I can't afford therapy without some help. And if that's mm -hmm. true, and if that's the case, and if you're somebody who is committed to the process and who really wants that kind of support, then I do everything I can to make that work. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I, I say sliding scale, but a lot of times what it ends up meaning is like reduced fees, um, you know, and, and a lot of people like have tears, but I really like this access program that you're talking about. Totally dig that. Um, so, and, and I like too, that you just, you know, just cut the fee in half and, you know, it's all said and done. Um, very transparent. And I appreciate that. Um, so regarding your practice, do you have weekend or evening appointments? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, especially during this pandemic, when I'm operating out of the office, uh, my, my hours have gotten kind of all over the place. Uh, you know, before this thing started, I thought of myself as kind of a workhorse. It, it's a little uncommon for therapists to feel comfortable like sitting still and, and going straight through, you know, six, seven, eight clients in a row. Uh, but I always dug that. And I uh, really enjoyed having like a four-day work week where we just sort of powered through everything. But now in this different world, that model hasn't really been fitting. And so especially because I am operating out of my home, uh, more or less in, my, in the entirety of my work, I am able to be a lot more flexible and uh, meet people kind of whenever works with them. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I've, I've had that same experience. Um, so regarding being a therapist, is it your first career? If not, what was? Uh, I mean, by and large, I would say yes. Uh, I did have a, like a solid 12 years in restaurants before I came to therapy. And that uh, was always sort of as a way of paying my way through school and, and getting right. into uh, being a counselor. But there was definitely a moment where I was like 25 and I was running my own restaurant. And I had something like a, a 100 employees and all of these things. And I thought, you know, maybe I will make this my career. Maybe I will go down this road. And then I just had so many flashbacks to my dad who is still working in restaurants and who told me my whole life, never work in a restaurant right <laughs> up until I was 15. And he gave me my first job working in a restaurant. And then I, I woke up, you know, 12 years later, like in my father's bed going, wait, how did I get here? That's, that's a cool story. That's very cool. What kind of food just out of curiosity? Oh, man, uh, a handful of things. But the bulk of my career was working in a uh, bakery cafe deli. Uh, and so nice. we did uh, like pizza and fresh baked bread uh, on sandwich or sandwiches that were uh, all on breads made in house. It was a really, really great experience. I don't regret it. That's awesome. Awesome. So ultimately, other than, you know, not wanting to end up in the restaurant business, what drew you to being a therapist? Uh, honestly, it was sort of always the goal. Uh, in high school in particular, I had a pretty tough time coming up. And a lot of that made me just wish that there was somebody to talk to. And uh, I eventually came to the conclusion that there are probably lots of other people that are desperately looking for somebody to talk to. And can I be a part of that solution? Love it. So tell us a little bit about yourself, hobbies, interests, TV shows, music, pets, Etc. Etc. Oh man, uh, so, so so much to cover. I, I guess uh, most of it boring, but just to say that uh, you know I, I love to hike and kayak. Uh, I do uh, a bit of kind of lazy camping when I can, uh, but more than that, um, I recently have gotten really invested in my career and uh, getting my you know somewhat newer practice off the ground. 
uh, as well as a fair amount of advocacy work. Uh, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, the atheist community of Austin, which I'm a part of, and between that responsibility and then doing the uh, the weekly talk show and, and these different things, I keep a pretty full schedule. Cool. Okay. So uh, regarding uh, you know your therapy work with folks, uh, what what modalities do you tend to draw upon? Yeah, you know, in the past year, I've gotten really obsessed with uh, radical acceptance and self-compassion as, uh, as really focal points. Uh, I also work with uh, polyvagal theory and something, mm -hmm. things that are more uh, somatically oriented, that mind-body connection. Uh, but I, I'm definitely eclectic. I'm drawing from uh, existential therapies and motivational interviewing, and uh, I'm trained in hypnosis and, and these kind of different ways of just approaching the way our mind connects with our nervous system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important. So important. So, you know, today we're talking about one of your specialties, which is religious trauma syndrome. How is that defined? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a somewhat newer term. Uh, Marlene Winnell is uh, actively working to perhaps have it included in the next edition, uh, next edition of the DSM, but primarily religious trauma syndrome is just a form of complex PTSD. Uh, it is that experience of disreality that people often have from swimming in an environment that is uh, constantly telling th them things that don't necessarily line up with their experiences. And that can cause a lot of just disconnection from reality and a lot of uh, discomfort, a lot of violations of your own internal intuition. And so religious trauma syndrome is that experience of being uh, maybe just disconnected from what your eyes and ears are telling you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, comparing it to CPTSD, in terms of religious trauma syndrome specifically, what would you say are some of the quote-unquote symptoms and the various types of impacts of religious trauma syndrome? Yeah, uh, so you are, you're looking at trauma writ large. I mean, those same experiences of nightmares and flashbacks, uh, but more specifically to religious trauma is the fact that when we're talking about religion, we're really talking about culture. We are in all likelihood talking about everything that you were taught by your parents, by your community from a very young age. And so a lot of the symptomology, if we want to call it that, is that experience of having a bunch of beliefs that don't quite line up with reality. I don't mean to keep harping on that aspect of things, but existentially, we live in a world that has nothing but spectrums. You know, there really aren't any ones and zeros, but right. sort of the common religious philosophy is usually to say that there is a one and only perfect uh, life that you're supposed to be leading. Mm -hmm. And so getting away from those notions and recognizing that your life just simply is, that it's not a, uh, like a shade of what it's supposed to be, that there is no platonic ideal of how you're supposed to operate, and instead encouraging or allowing people to simply be themselves. And even as they're striving to be the best version of themselves, recognizing that they aren't a fallen angel, that they aren't some like broken version of who they're supposed to be. Rather, they are just themselves and wanting to be a somewhat happier, somewhat healthier version of themselves. Cool. Makes total sense to me. So 
why do you think religion is traumatizing for so many people? And more specifically, what kinds of religion, or perhaps rather, what types of specific teachings tend to cause the most damage? Yeah, you know, uh, two questions with largely the same answer. Uh, I think the thing that makes religious trauma so specifically damaging is the simple idea that there is a perfect, that there mm -hmm. is a one right and wrong. And, you know, we can talk about uh, moral philosophy and ethics all day, but so often religion tells us that if you see something that doesn't line up with what you think is right or what feels right, that you're supposed to default to what is written in an ancient book of poetry or what is coming from a podium or a preacher. And when we do that, we violate our body's natural instincts. We violate our own intuition and it causes a sense of distrust within ourselves. You know, we are told uh, specifically in Christianity that the flesh is weak that we shouldn't listen to our gut. And as we continuously ignore that and instead rely on this literally deified ideal of what we're supposed to be, we end up doing a lot of things that we would never even consider if we were basing our life or our values on simple ideas of compassion and justice. Heard. Being indoctrinated into a damaging belief system is difficult enough. However, within religion and through what I've noticed working with clients, the difficulty doesn't stop there. Leaving the church, for example, can prove to cause further difficulty. Why is that? Yeah, because again, it's about culture. You know, mm -hmm. it isn't just that we had a singular traumatic experience. It's not the same thing as a car accident or perhaps an assault of some sort. Instead, it is the continuous daily indoctrination of ideas that, you know, are oftentimes uh, somewhat benign or insignificant, but that are just in everything. And so when we disconnect from religion, it often means, particularly for queer folks, that they are being disconnected from their family system, that they are being ostracized by their culture and their community. And so it isn't just the case that you're having to heal from a traumatic experience. It's that you're oftentimes having to rebuild your life in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So you kind of learn, you, you lose that cultural connection, that social connection. And then, of course, there's a whole lot of uh, cognitive stuff that goes into that regarding, you know, our thoughts, which then impact our feelings, right? Our emotions. Sure. Um, yeah, that, uh, that type of thought policing, particularly in Christianity, is a really uh, insidious aspect of uh, religious trauma. And getting to a point where you not just believe intellectually in these maybe new values or these new ideas, but that you uh, get accustomed to just allowing your thoughts and emotions to exist as they are. That doesn't mean that if you feel angry, you suddenly have permission to be a jerk about it. But it does mean that when you feel angry, you are allowed to acknowledge that anger. And if we have been taught our whole lives to police our thoughts, to hold every thought captive, as Paul says in the Bible, we, uh, again, are kind of violating our own intuition and uh, our own body. Also, in, in my experience, you know, there is just so much guilt and shame. Absolutely. So much, you know, and you know, shame, 
I mean, for all intents and purposes, guilt is feeling like you did something bad, whereas shame is feeling like you are bad. And, you know, I think that would be uh, a big a big thing in, in religious trauma syndrome is looking through those things. Um, what, what is your approach to guilt and shame, you know, in the context of religion? Yeah, I, a lot of my work is on highlighting this idea that human beings are human beings. You know, again, we are perhaps risen apes rather than fallen angels, and that we uh, have permission to simply be ourselves. And even as we are working to get better and working to become the best version of ourselves, that we don't need to look at ourselves as falling short of some specific ideal or some specific goal. That we simply are who we are. And rather than beat ourselves up for who we are, we can show ourselves compassion and work towards mm-hmm. becoming a better version of ourselves. Hence comes in the self-compassion and radical acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a huge part of it. Uh, and then also learn, leaning into things like evolutionary biology or just basic neurobiology, somatic experiencing, uh, these things that help to reconnect us with our body and to get away from this sort of idealized notion of what human beings are and instead accepting what we exist as, even as we're looking to grow. Right. And I imagine that on top of everything else can build quite the sense of like feelings of inadequacy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, If we have been told our whole lives that we are just inherently broken sinners that can only be made whole by uh, some uh, outside perfect force, and then we find out that that perfect force doesn't exist, we're then left with the idea that there is something inside of us that is broken and can't be fixed. And so I, I really like to encourage people to remember that they simply are who they are and that that's okay, that they are deserving of love, that they are human beings, and that all human beings, even the really awful ones, are good, healthy, happy people when they are free of these like outside pressures and forces. Mm-hmm. Totally dig it. So talk to us a little bit about the Shattered Assumption Framework and Betrayal Trauma Theory. Loaded yeah. question right now. <laughs> no, for, for sure. Uh, there is a great sense of, uh, of just anger oftentimes. I mean, usually when we're talking about religious trauma, we are generally speaking about people that grew up in a church uh, and that were told their whole lives one particular belief system that for most people probably turns out okay. But particularly when we're working with folks who are queer or kinky or poly or in some other way violate those notions of who they're supposed to be, there is a uh, real sense of being uh, lied to, of being gaslit throughout their entire lives, being told, oh, you're not gay, you're just making bad choices. You're not trans, you're just violating your own body. And there's uh, naturally a lot of anger and a lot of betrayal that comes out of that. So mm-hmm. a lot of the trauma work comes in finding uh, self-acceptance uh, and then ultimately recognizing those emotions that have been inside of us all along, but that have been ignored. 
You know, if we are told that uh, we're not allowed to be gay, we're not supposed to be gay, then we try to convince ourselves that we aren't gay. And I'm, I'm using homosexuality as one example of this right. idea. But the reality is, if you want so desperately to believe that you're straight or that you're cis or that you are whatever you're supposed to be, you really sort of splinter off and alienate yourself from who you actually are. And so uh, reintegrating those things and becoming aware and eventually accepting of the emotions around those things can be a real challenge. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, earlier we talked about religious trauma syndrome as complex, P complex PTSD. Um, can you tell us a little more about how, how RTS fits the bill for complex trauma? Yeah, the biggest piece of it is that it is so ongoing and so pervasive. Uh, we are, I mean, me, myself, I grew up in a Christian household. Uh, we were going to church three, four times a week. I was also going to a Christian school. I was surrounded by Christian friends and mentors. And so even if uh, Christianity itself is largely benign, which you know, is a, is a kind of a challenging idea in a lot of ways. But even if we take that inherent in those ideas was a lot of beliefs about who I was as a person and how wrong it was for me to be that as a person. And it's just everywhere. I mean, it's in the air that you're breathing. It's in the water that you're drinking. And so the trauma becomes really complex, not because it was uh, super acute or super challenging or because there was like some big dramatic moment. Certainly I had those big dramatic experiences as lots of people do, but the more complex or the more challenging aspect of it is just the disreality that is everywhere, that is baked into everything around you. And so it becomes a completely new paradigm to begin to see yourself as an animal. Yeah. And, you know, just to go back for a second, I want to talk about, you know, the, the teachings uh, of religion that, that are damaging for folks is like one side of the coin. Then we have more so like the behaviors and actions of, you know, you know, I can think of many like sexual abuse scandals, for example. Mm. Um, I mean, even, you know, I've worked with folks who um, confided in somebody they trusted in the church and then uh, about being gay. And then that person turned around and told everybody and betrayed them. Um, and ultimately leading to such, you know, going back again, guilt and shame and, uh, you know, forced repression of those things. Um, well, what are your thoughts on, on that side of things, more so the behaviors and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so the, the challenge there is the belief that your, uh, your pastor that said something that they shouldn't have or did something that they shouldn't have or that your mentor uh, who you come to for support is, is correct. You know, there is uh, a lot within religious uh, systems that say that you should believe that person or you should lean into these ideas even when they don't feel right. And so if you come to somebody and express like, hey, I saw something, it didn't sit well with me, something happened to me, I feel hurt by it. And if that thing is ignored or brushed off, you're not really encouraged or allowed to challenge it in any kind of meaningful way. And 
that is where uh, religion gets off course. That's where religion starts to become toxic when it becomes uh, deified or elevated above uh, your own intuition, your own sense of right and wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So more like, you know, we've kind of been talking about religious trauma syndrome generally, uh, a little bit about gender and sexuality, but more so specifically related to gender and sexuality. How does religious trauma syndrome manifest? Uh, well, within religious culture and, and particularly within like Western or American evangelicalism, there is a lot to say about uh, homosexuality, about trans identities, uh, about you know, promiscuity or, or uh, the appropriate ways to connect, relate or have sex or connect with people. And the way that it particularly shows up culturally is just a belief system that says that uh, homosexuality is a reason to be disfellowshipped, to be pushed out of your community, to be pushed out of your household or out of your family. Uh, I, I work with so many folks that are completely out of touch with their family of origin because of these beliefs or because those beliefs became more important than the ideas of love and family, compassion, connection, and, and these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What would you like for folks who struggle with their religious upgrade, upbringing, specifically as it relates to gender and sexuality, to know? You know, I suppose I would just say that uh, wherever you are in life, whoever you are, however you describe yourself, that you are a person, that you're a human being, and human beings are deserving of love. Even if you have made some mistakes in the past, even if there are things about your identity or your personality that you're working to change, we don't need to come in with a club. You know, uh, carrots and sticks aren't effective motivators. And so when we promise people uh, that if they just change this thing about themselves, that their life will get better, or if we tell people that their suffering is because of who they are, and if they just fix that, we are really missing who they are as individuals. Uh, and so I would encourage anybody who is struggling with some of these thoughts and ideas to say that, yeah, perhaps you could be less anxious. Perhaps you could be less depressed. Perhaps there are strategies that you could change in your life to have a, a healthier and a happier version of you. But you're just fine the way that you are. And mm-hmm. as much as we want to help you be a, a happier, healthier version, that there is nothing that you need to apologize for because of your identity. Thinking about, you know, identity development, you know, we, there are many different models of identity development and and there are models specific to identity development when it comes to uh, gender and sexuality as well. Um, In what ways have you seen religion hinder identity development? Mm. The biggest thing is when you experience a feeling, a thought, an idea, an emotion that is against the rules or that is somehow banned, we often say, well, I'm not allowed to feel that way. I'm not supposed to feel that way. I can't feel that way. And because we put so much pressure on that idea, we often disconnect and end up blinding ourselves from these things. Uh, If you are gay, but you're not allowed to be gay, you just eventually convince yourself that you aren't gay. 
And then you get very confused why your relationships are so challenging, why you feel uninterested or disconnected socially or emotionally from these people. And so the real challenge is in being willing to accept ourselves as we are and being able to even see ourselves as we are after having spent so many years convincing ourselves that we that those things aren't true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what what recommendations do you have for other therapists working with folks who struggle with this? I suppose I would just encourage them to remember how uh, pervasive these ideas are. You know, if you were to experience a really traumatic car crash, we would have a lot of compassion and understanding about the fact that you might not feel comfortable driving for a while. You might not feel comfortable riding around in a car. Perhaps you even feel uncomfortable, you know, watching TV shows of people in a car, or, uh, watching, you know, cars drive down the street and these different things. When it comes to religious trauma, I really want to encourage therapists to remember that this is part of our culture, that this is really pervasive, and oftentimes it can be difficult for clients to even recognize what feels triggering to them or what is causing hurt and upset here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there anything I haven't asked about religious trauma syndrome that you think is important to know and or talk about? You know, I, I think the biggest thing that I would say is that uh, when we're talking about religious trauma syndrome, we are talking about trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not inherently the case that everybody who is religious is struggling in these kinds of ways. And the term religious trauma syndrome is not just like some atheist idea of describing everybody who has a belief in God or God's Uh, Instead, it is a a specific way of looking at or understanding the hurt that can be caused by the toxic elements in these things. Cool. What are some misconceptions of religious trauma syndrome, you think? Uh, Yeah, again, that it would be just sort of a a club used uh, against anybody who has any religious beliefs. Uh, I mean, the truth is I am, you know, very publicly an atheist. I'm out as an atheist. And, you know, as a therapist, we're kind of encouraged not to share some certain of our beliefs with our clients. And so there was a a little bit of a calculated risk, I guess, in taking that label on. Nevertheless, I work with a lot of religious clients. Uh, I work with a lot of folks that are maybe questioning their belief systems or that still cling to a belief system, but that have experienced religious trauma. And so Ultimately, I would say that religious trauma syndrome is not synonymous with uh, atheism or with a belief that all religion is bad. It's rather recognizing that there are perhaps some toxic elements that often get stirred in to religious systems and that those toxic elements can be very painful. Right. Yeah. Because just believing that religious trauma syndrome applies to anybody who has any sort of religious belief would play into that black and white binary type of thing that we're trying to avoid, right? Absolutely. So switching gears a little bit to you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable vulnerable clients, such as those who are trans, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? 
you know, in particular, I, I do work with a lot of folks, uh, again, because they are queer or poly or kinky, uh, because they are sex workers or because they are trans, who are just not supported by our society. Uh, a, a lot of the folks who come to me, uh, I, I, in fact, I think I did sort of an informal survey at one point, and I recognized that uh, something like 50% of the clients I was seeing had no relationship with their family of origin. Uh, oh. And so I, I work with a lot of folks who have been sort of kicked out of their family, who have maybe lost jobs or lost relationships because of either their belief system or because of their identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So regarding you know, an initial session, what could a new client expect from you in an initial session? Mm. Uh, that I just want to meet them that I trust them to be the expert on themselves and that I trust them to know what's important or what needs to be worked on. Uh, a lot of therapists, and with good reason, might do their intakes with uh, some formal assessments and go through a bunch of like checkbox forms and, and work down the list. And that's fine and great and wonderful, but that's not how I operate. I'm much more interested in what the client believes is important to talk about. And yeah, generally, I do want to check in on things like What's your diet, your exercise, your sleep, your alcohol and other drug use, uh, your family of origin? I, I am, of course, curious about some of those general ideas. But most importantly, I believe that the client knows what they need. And even if they are sort of circling around those ideas and struggling to know what exactly, quote, the problem is, I trust them to know what's important. And I like to lean into their instincts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about on an ongoing basis in terms of sessions? Uh, it really depends on the person. Um, oftentimes, I will work uh, specifically with polyvagal theory uh, or other sort of somatically oriented processes. I have a, uh, a yoga therapist that I often partner with or collaborate with or cool. that will work with my clients. Uh, and so a lot of the work will oftentimes be sort of checking in on a regular basis with our body, uh, getting in touch with some of the emotions that we've maybe disconnected with because they are against the rules or uncomfortable in some way. And so uh, a lot of it will be oriented around those directions, but it also just depends on the person. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't, uh, I don't, use a lot of treatment planning or a lot of like particularly regimented techniques. Instead, I want to meet people where they're at and see what the next step for them looks like. Mm -hmm. Okay. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> boy, uh, I, I shudder to think uh, that somebody might even be listening to this, but uh, just to say uh, I think most folks would say that I am uh, overly compassionate. Uh, people often see me as uh, a little bit of like a, uh, you know, like a camp counselor, you know, gassing people up and, and really leaning into these ideas that uh, people don't need to apologize for who they are, even as they're working to change that. Uh, and, you know, beyond that, uh, I tell a lot of really dumb stories, a lot of annoying jokes, <laughs> uh, really anything I can to make an idea sticky. Uh, I really enjoy uh, the work of Milton Erickson and uh, this sort of notion that you can maybe incept an idea by uh, just by putting a little bit of focus or, or maybe a little bit of humor behind it. 
planting the seed is how I like to absolutely yeah contextualize that. Um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, definitely, there's a, a fair amount of laughter. Uh, I like to uh, really lean into emotion. Um, okay. I often, particularly working with the atheist community, I interact with a lot of folks that are pretty heady in their approach to things and maybe a little bit overly intellectual. And so if there's anything that we can do to like identify an emotion and maybe chase it around or lean into it in different ways, I really want to, uh, to focus on that. Uh, in terms of crying with clients, I've definitely had some emotionally challenging sessions by, by all means. I uh, don't think I've ever actually shed a tear in a session, but I've definitely done so after hanging up. Um, but uh, I, I like to be very present in the room. And man, I miss being able to work with folks face to face. Uh, mm-hmm. and have a little bit more of that co-regulation, a little bit more of that uh, physical, like nervous system level, mirror neuron oriented type of connection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? You know, I think being male in a female dominated field um, can like pose some challenges in, in some ways, you know, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. uh, So one of the biggest challenges that I have as a male therapist who works with couples is so, so, so often uh, what I imagine is happening before a couple reaches out to me is in a cishet relationship. There is a woman saying, we need to go to therapy. And the guy says, no. And the woman says, well, we need to go to therapy. And the guy says, no. And then finally, uh, he concedes, well, so long as it's a male therapist so that you two women aren't going to team up on me. And then they come <laughs> to me for the first session and it's like, that's not necessarily something I'm going to be able to work with. Like if nobody right. wants to be here, if you're dragging somebody. So there's, uh, there's maybe a lot of assumptions about what therapy might look like with a female therapist versus a male therapist. And right. uh, so that's, that's a big part of it. But uh, otherwise... I think that being a male therapist, that uh, male clients, again, particularly in the more uh, atheist community, which is pretty male dominated and that is uh, somewhat over intellectualized in a lot of ways, there's maybe an expectation that uh, I'm going to be that way as well. And so when folks come to me and they recognize, hey, here's a dude who paints his fingernails and is willing to talk about feelings all day that maybe makes it a little bit easier for men to engage with that idea or to become more comfortable with that process. Totally agree. I I noticed the, you know, same exact thing. Um, You know, consequently, you know, can be helpful for men, especially because you're able to set that like example, you know, that Mm -hmm. a man can be compassionate. A man can be in touch with his feelings and that's totally okay. Um, you know, I think specifically that uh, women have a lot of uh, thoughts and kind of notions of cis men and what they're like. Do you ever run into barriers in working with women? Uh, to an extent, um, I would say that I've gotten to avoid a lot of that type of challenge just by being very, very public. You know, there are 
hours and hours and hours of footage of me just talking on a talk show. And so uh, it's not the case necessarily that people who come to me are like fans of the show, but certainly they have more than enough opportunity before we get started to kind of check in on my personality or to get a sense of my values or my beliefs. And so that's made it a lot easier for a lot of folks to maybe self-select uh, as to whether or not I might mm -hmm. be the person for them, which uh, to, to anybody listening, I think is perhaps the most important piece of advice I can give you about finding a therapist. That research seems to show us that more important than the type of therapist that you work with, like their licensure or credentials, the therapeutic uh, orientation or their specific strategies or really any of these things, the vast, the most important aspect of uh, good and successful therapy is just working with somebody that you could find yourself eventually trusting or sharing your secrets with. And so uh, I like to give people just a, a taste of my personality that way. It's some, certainly something I do in the consultation process. I offer a complimentary consultation where people can just get to know me and see if we have good chemistry, because that's really the most important aspect of, uh, of good therapy. Absolutely. I'm totally like Rogerian in that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and that's why I created this podcast, you know, because really otherwise, you know, most people select their therapist based on this like short blurb about the therapist online, like using uh, some popular um, therapy websites, as an example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I created this podcast to give people more of an idea of the type of person that that particular therapist is um, in hopes of, you know, finding a therapist and sticking to it and, you know, having success with that. Because I've seen so many people just see therapist after therapist after therapist, can't quite find that connection and then just kind of give up. Um, yeah. So I'm hoping that this podcast helps people do that with a little more ease. Um, back to you, though. How do you define holding space for someone? You know, uh, particularly working with polyvagal theory or these more somatically oriented ideas, uh, holding space is oftentimes just allowing people to be in distress and know that that's okay. You know, it's, uh, it's human nature. I mean, even a, uh, a amoeba in a dish will sort of flagella away from a toxin. And so when we feel an uncomfortable or a against the rules type of emotion, like anger or depression or uh, extreme uh, emotional flooding, there's a natural desire to run away from that thing. And of course mm -hmm. there is. I mean, who wouldn't want to get away from an uncomfortable emotion? Right. But often we need to spend a little bit of time with that emotion. We need to give it a opportunity to work its way out of the body. And so holding space is often just being a safe anchor that says, I'm not going to leave just because you're angry. I'm not going to storm out of this office just because you're crying or because you're doing something that's, quote, against the rules. You are allowed and empowered to have whatever emotional experience you're having, and I'm not going to leave because of it. So Holding space oftentimes is just allowing people to know that whatever feeling they're feeling is totally okay to feel. Got it. I like that definition. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Uh, the, I, I guess the best advice I've ever received was around the idea that therapists have feelings too. 
you know, that uh, therapists experience aggression. Uh, it can be a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit strange to frame it this way, but the reason why we have things like a late cancellation fee or, or something along those lines is so that we can maintain the relationship because, you know, therapists are working for money. Like we are here to do a job. And so as much as we want to be person-centered, as much as we want to have an unconditional positive regard, and as much as we want to be uh, always available and supporting of our clients, we have to recognize that if somebody stands us up over and over again and is taking money out of our pockets or in some way damaging the business side of things, that that's going to naturally generate feelings of frustration or resentment. And so something like a, uh, a late cancellation fee is not there to punish the client or not even to prevent them from canceling. It's instead there to make it so that when they do cancel, the therapist's needs are being met and that there isn't a sense of frustration or resentment that's building up. Uh, and I, I know we're expected to be like these perfect professionals that never feel those feelings, <laughs> but the reality is we're human beings too. And so I would say, especially to new therapists, it's important to ask yourself, all right, so the client wants to meet at 8 a.m. If you meet, if you agree to it, are you going to be resentful about the fact that you had to get out of bed early? Is that going to show up in your clinical work? You know, you want to be forgiving when a client uh, no-shows on an appointment and maybe there's a temptation to let that fee slide. And, and maybe you should. That's certainly a question to be asking yourself. But ultimately, if you do do that thing, are you going to end up resenting the client for it? Uh, those fees, those rules, those boundaries are often there to protect the client from our aggression. And I think that that's a really important ideal. It's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about that way, but I, I mean, totally true. <laughs> you know, and, and I think it, it brings up the, uh, you know, the different hats that we wear, you know, we sure. have to, it's hard to wear the therapist and the business, you know, the CEO hat at the same time, um, you know, and there's so many competing things when it comes to running a business, but also being a therapist. Um, that yes, you know, a lot of those things like, uh, you know, no show or, or late cancellation fees are there and, you know, in place to um, keep, maintain an even keel, both in a business way and therapist way. Yeah. And it, I know from the client side of things, it can feel really punitive. It can feel like you are being punished. And I, I guess I just want to stress that that's not the notion here. Uh, and in fact, I might hesitate myself to work with a therapist who uh, doesn't have good boundaries around these kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Because inevitably, they're going to begin to feel some of that aggression. And that fee is there to protect you from your therapist's aggression. Because again, therapists may or may not be wonderful human beings. I, I certainly aspire to be so. But I am a human being. And I'm going to have the natural emotions and impulses that come alongside that. Good deal. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I love my job because it is an excuse to get paid to read self-help books in a lot of ways, right? Like It is an opportunity to dedicate my career towards better understanding human beings and human emotion and, and these kinds of things. Uh, I, I don't think a day goes by that I work with clients 
without getting a better sense of myself. Uh, and particularly that, that centers around, at least recently, around uh, emotions that we maybe don't notice in ourselves. Uh, it's a really common experience, I think, especially in relationships for somebody, maybe your partner comes up to you and says like, hey, are you okay? Are, are you angry right now? And oftentimes we might say, no, I'm not angry and mean it and believe it, but we are acting as if we're angry. And so the, the question becomes like, well, are you really angry if you can't feel the anger? I, I say that, yes, you can. You can be angry. You can act angry. You can have anger directing your actions and your behaviors, often without even experiencing or feeling that anger. And when I uh, notice that in others, it helps me to become more aware of it in myself. Mm -hmm. Totally. What do you do to take care of yourself? Uh, I, I have a pretty aggressive uh, self-care regimen. Um, you know, I, I kind of ascribe to that idea that uh, if, you know, there, maybe there are two types of chefs in the world. You know, there are folks that can just sort of walk into a kitchen, can visualize a bunch of ingredients, can imagine in their head how that thing is going to taste. And then there are folks that have to like religiously follow the recipe and have to go like step by step by step. And I never really had good intuition. I wasn't really uh, taught and there wasn't a lot of modeling growing up on how to take care of myself. And so I see myself as like the second type of chef, somebody who has to really follow a recipe because my intuition isn't great. I had to kind of learn these things for myself. So for those reasons, I am uh, really, really diligent to be uh, jogging on a regular basis. I found that that's super important to just feeling grounded and uh, connected to my own body. Uh, I meditate on a regular basis to feel maybe more in tune with my emotions. Uh, and then I just watch a whole lot of movies. I, uh, I absolutely <laughs> love uh, watching as many like hoity-toity or like dumb Avenger action movies as I possibly can. Cool. Do you have uh, a favorite movie? Oh, man, too many to name. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Off the top of my head, uh, I really love uh, Rounders. The, uh, the Matt Damon, uh, uh, John Malkovich movie. Mm -hmm. It is just a dumb, middle budget, like kind of mediocre sort of heist type movie from the late 90s. And if you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. It's <laughs> dumb in all the best ways and clever in all the better ways. Awesome. I haven't seen that movie in years. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewatch that. Oh, it's a good time. <laughs> How would you define happiness? You know, I suppose I would say that happiness is in large part uh, freedom from uh, not just pain, but from suffering. You know, we can experience uncomfortable things and we can experience joy and all of that is wonderful. But happiness is really the willingness to accept life as it is and to be permitted to enjoy pleasure where it's available and patience to endure distress uh, where it exists. Mm -hmm. Cool. Couple vulnerable questions here. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? Too many to count. Uh, <laughs> I, I've had a, a good number. Uh, I definitely remember the time where, like, my seventh or eighth client of the day 
at the very end of the session, after having been at work all day, pointed out that like I had a huge rip in the crotch of my pants that had <laughs> in all likelihood been there and been visible for every person who walked through the door Aww. and didn't say anything. <laughs> um, but maybe my, uh, my favorite story uh, is uh, a encounter I had where a client was telling me about their work and about the uh, body painting that they did. And I, I clearly wasn't quite understanding it. And so they took out their phone and they wanted to show me a bunch of body painting. And I'm like going through their website with them and I'm looking at it all. And as they keep scrolling, I start to re realize that uh, the first couple of pages were all different models. And then eventually the pictures that I'm looking at more and more are of the client. And as oh, no. we keep scrolling further and further, the uh, level or the quantity of paint in the body painting was getting lower and lower. <laughs> and I had this like surreal moment of what felt like a very innocuous conversation is now me basically just looking at pictures of my client naked. Uh, and that was definitely sort of a, a challenging and, and very embarrassing moment to take on uh, to be both like sex positive around that experience while also wanting to maintain some boundaries. It was, uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of a challenging day. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. That's really funny. <laughs> I, I have some some friends who enjoy doing body painting, so uh, I think I, I might not have gone as far down the tunnel as you did. <laughs> but, so I'm glad. <laughs> it's good to keep in mind. Um, uh, next uh, vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Uh, yes. No, I, I definitely am in therapy myself currently. Uh, you know, at probably in the next uh, couple of months, I'll be ready to wrap up and then I might go six months or a year or depending on how life treats me, maybe even longer before getting back into therapy. But uh, without wanting to put too fine a point on it, I don't know that I would trust a therapist who hasn't worked with a therapist themselves. Um, the, the model that I often like to use is uh, around like a physical therapist. You know, if you just got out of a car accident and are maybe learning to walk again, if you are getting older and are wanting to just maintain sort of your strength in your body, or if you are about to perform at the Olympics or in a Super Bowl, you're probably working with some sort of physical therapist. So there's no right amount of healthy to be working with a therapist. There's just, is there something about yourself that you'd like to get better at or that you'd like to change? And I know that there are certainly things about myself that I would like to see continuously improved. And so I do, uh, from time to time, work with a therapist. And I really would encourage everybody to embrace that idea. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I could not trust a therapist who has not been in therapy themselves. I mean, I think just the experience of being on the opposite side of the couch is, you know, really important to have, like, felt and, like, you know, in order to understand where somebody's hesitations may lie or why that person, you know, maybe they feel anxious or, you know, I think it just, it's such an important experience to have as, as a therapist oneself. Yeah, I, I think that's an idea that all of my kinky clients will certainly understand that if you are going to be in that position of power over somebody else, that you need to experience it from the other direction as well to have a, a sense of what that power, what that responsibility looks like. Yes, <laughs> totally. Um, well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? 
Yeah, we have kind of poked around the edges of this, but I, yeah. I guess I would just say again that uh, I am very like publicly out there. And, you know, that was a, a very challenging decision to make. Uh, it is not unreasonable for therapists to want to keep some of those things kind of under wraps, not because they're deep, dark, secret secrets, but just because they uh, can often influence the relationship or uh, create certain assumptions about who your therapist is. And so I, I would say to anybody listening to this that, yeah, there is a lot of my voice out on the interwebs in these different ways. And you can get a sense of my personality in that way. And I would definitely encourage somebody who's curious about working with me to you know, maybe watch a, a short clip or, or to, you know, listen to a podcast like this. I definitely don't want to give anybody a reading list or just try and like show my YouTube channel or anything along those lines. But even if you have uh, sort of looked at those things, to remember that that is maybe an aspect of my personality out on a stage. And it's not necessarily who I am as a person, but more important than that, it's not necessarily what our relationship will look like in the therapy office. And so, uh, I would encourage anybody to reach out for a consultation where we can have that conversation directly and one-on-one -on -one to get a better sense of how our chemistry is or how we operate together. Good deal. Well, thank you for being on the show, Chrissy. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for, for doing this and for giving uh, folks an opportunity to, uh, to maybe get a sample of their therapist before they commit to jumping into a relationship. I think it's a, a really beautiful idea. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Grace Secker, licensed professional counselor and registered yoga therapist, who will be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, psychology, and yoga. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmit.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T, R-E-O-N dot com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.